Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Politics and Polemics, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Megu. I also host my own podcasts, Independent Thought and Freedom, and also a story club, Global Politics and Global Cultures. Today, my guest is Jerome Slater, author of the book, Mythologies Without End, the U.S., Israel, and the Arab-Israeli Conflict, 1917 to 2020, published by Oxford University Press, out now in hardcover and Kindle. Welcome, Jerome. Welcome to you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, well, congratulations on the book. It's uh, just been out. Um, wh- where are you joining us from right now? Uh, Buffalo, New York, or a suburb of uh, Buffalo. Okay, great, great. I actually grew up not too far from there in Toronto. <laughs> so, yeah. But um, you know, what we like to do uh, when we start off our interviews is to ask our authors to just tell us a bit about your background and particularly in relation to the subject of this book. Uh, well, okay. Um, I'm 85 years old. Uh, the significance of that is that when I was coming of age growing up in New York City, uh, there was still uh, considerable uh, anti-Semitism in the United States. Not that I suffered very much for it, but it was uh, th- there was enough around so that people of my generation almost unanimously, not quite, but almost unanimously were uh, uh, ecstatic by the creation of uh, a Jewish state in Israel in 1948. I was 13 years old at the time. Uh, and uh, my uh, uh, that identification with Israel for me continued for many years afterward, uh, especially uh, during the 1967 war, when it was widely believed uh, in the United States, the Jewish community, almost everywhere, that Israel was in danger of uh, being overrun and uh, essentially uh, 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 ceased to exist as a Jewish state. Uh, so there was enormous exultation uh, when uh, Israel won an overwhelming uh, a victory in that. Uh, and uh, so I mentioned that only to show that uh, I have been uh, strongly very pro-Israel throughout uh, all my life in some sense, but certainly in terms of, of uh, well, I'll just, uh, I'll just let it go at, at that and see what, where we want to go with it. Sure, sure. I mean, I think it's also important, uh, you mentioned in your introduction, how, you know, you served uh, as the anti-submarine warfare officer. Uh, You want to just let us know a bit about that background? Sure. Uh, I was uh, an officer in the U.S. Navy from 1957 to 1960. And one of my responsibilities was uh, anti-submarine warfare, ASW, we always shortened it. Uh, the uh, relevance of that is that uh, 
I don't remember the exact date, but sometime uh, in the late 1960s, the Egyptians purchased four submarines from the uh, Soviet Union, uh, which we were seen as endangering uh, the small Israeli Navy, uh, which had uh, destroyers as their main ASW uh, 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 capable uh, military forces. So I wrote to the uh, the Israeli embassy in the United States, I think, I don't have a copy of it anymore, um, to just to say that in case uh, uh, war broke out with Egypt uh, before, the Soviet, before the Israelis had the chance to uh, train their own ASW officers on, the on their destroyers, that uh, I would uh, uh, consider uh, serving in that capacity until they had done so. Uh, well, uh, I got a polite reply saying, thank you very much, but, uh, uh, that won't be necessary. Uh, but within a few years after that, it became clear to me that the Egypt, which is the primary, uh, Arab enemy at the time, uh, was looking for a way to settle the conflict. And there were a number of overtures. There had really been a number of overtures, even going back to 1948 from the Egyptian King Farouk on terms that the, Israel, the Israelis could well have considered uh, as acceptable. Um, and, uh, and Gamal Abdel Nasser, who of course had the reputation of being a wild uh, nationalist and uh, aggressive uh, um, with imperial ambitions and determined to destroy Israel. In fact, Nasser was looking for some way to resolve the issue on the basis of compromise. Then it became overwhelmingly clear that was the case when Sadat took over, which I I remember correctly, it was 1970. Mm -hmm. uh, and all of these overtures from the Egyptians were simply spurned by the Israelis. There were no serious negotiations because Ben-Gurion and uh, Golda Meir and others were not prepared to consider any compromise with Egypt. Um, uh, so at that point, I began to wonder whether, I, whether Israel was bearing some degree of responsibility uh, for the continuation of the general Arab-Israeli conflict. And that's when I began to seriously study uh, the, uh, the project. And as I say in my uh, prologue, uh, uh, that uh, I considered writing, I didn't, of course, but I considered writing to Golda Meir to say that, uh, consider if, uh, if the war breaks out because you have spurned uh, opportunities to have avoided war with Egypt, uh, consider my offer as canceled. So that period marked the beginning of your deep interest in this subject. Uh, would you agree with that? Well, yes, I was interested in it even before, but only as a kind of uh, ordinary citizen, not as a uh, scholar. But right. once, the, uh, once it, I began to reevaluate the evidence of the opportunities that Israel had lost in dealing with Nasser, and then for a while with Sadat, uh, then I began to seriously look into it and begin the study of it. Right, because it, this has been—I I mean, you know—you've been writing on this for for decades now, you know. And you—you um, would you say that this is a kind of culmination, uh, you know, a kind of life's work? Because it's a big book; it's like over five hundred pages. You know, and and looking at your message over the decades, it's it's been very consistent. 
Uh, do, so do you see this as some sort of summation in, in some ways? Absolutely. And it does incorporate and update and uh, modify, of course, uh, the uh, work that I've been doing on this for the past, uh, off the top of my head, I'd say 50 years or so. Uh, uh, or something. Like, yes, it is the culmination and uh, uh, very much, very much so. Yeah, I mean, I, I could see that it's it's really, you know, an, an encyclopedic uh, compendium of your, you know, reading and reading and reading and, and, and digesting and put it putting it together. And you even make a, a point in the book that you cannot possibly list all the references because it's, you know, you're talking 50 years of research right there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So you, you um, now, as you note in the book, uh, you know, there's just, and, and as we're suggesting here, there's tons and tons of books on the subject. So you have a section on it, and I'd like you to tell our listeners, you know, why another book on this, con- on this conflict? Well, uh, for one thing, that, uh, to my knowledge, there isn't any overall work of synthesis like this that covers this entire period. I mean, of course, there have been many major books written about earlier periods, but uh, very few recent books covering the entire history of the uh, conflict. And so in this way, what I'm trying to do is synthesize and present in a single work the uh, most important findings about the conflict uh, as it has been developed. I rely very heavily, incidentally, on Mm -hmm. Israeli sources. Uh, And the Israeli sources are... Are, are extensive. For one thing, uh, although I don't read Hebrew, almost everything that's important uh, in Hebrew was then published in English, and lots of Israeli scholars even write directly uh, in in English. Uh, mm-hmm. So there isn't any any work that integrates in this way, and that is also up to date. I mean, that's the other important thing. Uh, there have been very important books written uh, that were published, let's say, uh, seven to ten years ago. Uh, so this is more up to date, uh, uh, and uh, I think it does. You know, I am trying to incorporate what are the what is the best work on all of these important topics, uh, and so on. So that's one part of it. But the other part of it is that I have an argument to make, or actually more than one argument. Uh, yeah. But certainly the main argument is that contrary to the what I'm calling the mythology. Uh, and especially contrary to the very famous uh, comment by Abba Iban, the former Israeli foreign minister, ambassador to the United States, ambassador to the UN, and so on, who was famously eloquent, and he made a very famous comment that the uh, Arabs never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity to achieve peace. Mm-hmm. Well, that has come to be accepted as the conventional wisdom on on the topic that it's the the Arabs who have been adamant Israelism been always willing and ready to make a, a fair compromises to settle all the various conflicts with the individual states with the Palestinians with the Arab states as a whole and so on well my argument is that it's simply false that when you review in detail the negotiations or the overtures or the uh, efforts made by 
the UN, by, Amer- by American uh, leaders, uh, by the Arabs, of course, in particular, uh, it's Israel that has turned down what I consider to be legitimate compromises, compromises which essentially are a two-state solution. Israel withdraws from the territories it conquered in the various wars, and the Palestinians get a state uh, in the uh, in the West Bank and Gaza. Uh, so it's it's it, so that's the the main mythology that uh, that I uh, uh, I'm examining uh, there in 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 great in great detail. Yeah, yeah, I. It your your book definitely is, you know has both of those purposes. It's 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 encyclopedic in many ways, um, you know. And then you know even it, it's it seems to be like you know you're writing a reference book as well. The, with, with the way you know you go through the details, you summarize it. You have your summarizing chapter at the end, you know. So it's 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 very you know, it's a compendium of, of facts and uh, historical facts that one can refer to, you know, objective facts. And then on the other hand, yeah, you have your, your, your very specific point of view, um, you know, uh, well argued and supported by the facts, but which contradict, um, you know, official policy. So, yes, yeah. May I just say, yes, I think you're, uh, you're absolutely right. I do conceive of this in part as a reference work, uh, in other words, what I, what, what I would hope, <laughs> if it's <laughs> not too grandiose, uh, what I would hope is that if, uh, if uh, people, whether scholars or uh, ordinary citizens interested in the topic, or policymakers for that matter, or Israelis for that matter, uh, want to say, hmm, uh, what exactly happened in the, uh, in the 1967 war, for example? Uh, well, let's see what Slater has to say about that. Uh, but I, that's my hope that it would yeah. it would be seen as a work that not necessarily that far from it that it's the last word on that topic or that my point of view can't be argued with, but that at least it would have to be sort of taken into account and not even the argument necessarily taken into account. Suppose somebody wanted to know what exactly did happen in uh, uh, the Oslo conference, for example. Uh, well, let's see. Is that covered in, in Slater's book? Yes, it's covered. So that, I'm hoping to see that would be at least as a starting point. Uh, not, no, naturally, I also hope that my arguments are accepted and, yeah. that, and even that the pol- it would affect American or Israeli policy. But, but just at the first level, uh, that it serve as a standard reference work, I would be delighted with that. Yeah, I, I I see that. I mean, I'm not a, an expert in the field at all. And, um, you know, I see a lot of detail there and reference to, um, you know, a lot of facts and, and, um, and work there that I, that's immediately what I thought. I said, oh, wow, okay, great. I can, if I want to find out more about this period and about all these smaller conflicts in the 50s and 60s that I'm not really au courant on, you know, it's it serves that well, and then plus you have your your argument because then you in each section in each chapter, after you you lay out the facts quite meticulously, then you kind of argue the um, you know the policy points, the philosophical points, um, and and these sorts of things. So yeah, so that's much appreciated. Um, so you know you you um you talk about the mythology. 
and, and the main mythology about um, that, it's the Arabs who miss the opportunities and never miss to miss the opportunities. Um, is uh, But you use uh, the title has plural, it's mythologies without end. Uh, so what are the, I suppose, most important mythologies and, um, and why is it important um, that, uh, so important that it becomes the title of your book? Well, certainly the, uh, the central mythology uh, that I'm examining is the lost opportunities for, for peace uh, argument. Uh, and uh, you may have noticed uh, that uh, I cite uh, uh, Daniel Moynihan's wonderful uh, observation uh, which has become almost a cliche, but which I think is is uh, uh, absolutely true, which, which he said that everybody is entitled to their own opinions, but they're not entitled to their own set of facts. Uh, so that uh, the uh, first mythology uh, is has to do with lost opportunities for peace. Uh, I, <laughs> I think I make some passing uh, references to other mythologies uh, elsewhere in the book, uh, but the, the main other one that I examine in an entire chapter, but then refer to it elsewhere in the book, are the various arguments that Zionists or Zionism have made in order to hopefully prove that uh, Israel and only Israel, or, or I should say Israel and the, and the Jewish people and only the Jewish people are entitled uh, to sovereignty and a state, state and sovereignty uh, in all of historic Palestine, uh, which, depending on how you define it, historic Palestine or biblical Palestine included not only the current state of Israel, not only the West Bank and Gaza, but uh, parts of uh, parts of uh, southern Syria, uh, parts of Lebanon parts of, of Jordan, even Jordan going beyond the present boundary of the Jordan River, and so on. So it was quite, well, in the end, it wasn't huge, but it encompassed te- more territory even than, than Israel controls uh, today. So uh, one of the questions I, I, I examine is, well, what, what are the arguments exactly uh, that uh, Israel uh, and the Jewish people are entitled to all of historic Palestine to the exclusion of any political uh, sovereignty by the Palestinian people or other Arab Arab people. So that's the that's the uh, the, the main uh, mythology. Right, right. That um, and, and that uh, wider territorial expanse you referred to just now is is that the um, Greater Israel? going from the Nile to the Euphrates, is, is that right? Uh, well, in, 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 in theory, I suppose, or going back to the founding of, uh, of the Zionist movement, uh, today uh, it's limited in practice uh, mm-hmm. to uh, sovereignty over the West Bank, and not even necessarily in Gaza. That uh, d- depends on who you, you, you know. That effectively, the Israelis have given up any interest in sovereignty over Gaza, so that there is no longer any uh, drive for greater, by the greater Israel adherence to the most extensive early Zionist claims. In other words, 
there's no no longer any claim to to southern Lebanon, uh, no longer any claim to southern Syria except the Golan Heights, which has now been officially annexed. Today, the Greater Israel uh, mythology, or not mythology, is not the word I want. The Greater Israel adherence to those who who insist on a Greater Israel in practice that means uh, sovereignty over the West Bank and uh, all of Jerusalem. And, right. uh, and and not even necessarily all of it. I mean, we can get into the details of, of what, what exactly is the, of, of the, the greater Israel uh, position today. But uh, so, yeah, certainly the, the, the most extensive one, and certainly no Israeli is now claiming that, uh, that uh, there are parts of, of uh, Western Jordan beyond the Jordan River that really should be part of Israel because uh, uh, we think that it once was uh, a home for Jews. Right, right. I mean, now throughout throughout your book, um, you, as, as you go through uh, the history, um, you you also have you know you you kind of go through certain concepts, you know, like uh, Zionism. Or, or, you know, or sometimes you know, it's not a concept, but I, I suppose a, a phenomenon, the Israel lobby in the U.S. or, or the Israeli narrative. And, and, and this kind of organizes your work. Um, but as you as you um, in, introduce the reader to go through it, one of the statements you make is that um, Israel is well along the road to both a moral and security disaster. Uh, I, I had interviewed uh, Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson um, a while back, Colin Powell's chief of staff, and um, he had he had told uh, he, he he was saying you know with with the way things are developing, uh, it, it's such a disaster that he said the state of Israel itself might not exist in fifty years. Uh, is is your uh, assessment there somewhere along the same? kind of lines is what uh, he was saying? Uh, well, uh, we would have to clarify whether he was, I assume what he was saying is that uh, the state of Israel would no longer exist, not that he wishes that the state of Israel would no longer exist. Yeah. Uh, well, the most serious, uh, there is no longer any conventional military uh, threat uh, to Israel. Uh, mm-hmm. And the Israeli military leaders uh, largely uh, agree uh, about that. Uh, well, I can get into later on. But for for example, the Israeli military leaders, many of them or most of them, have uh, argued and lost within the Israeli government uh, that uh, we should give back the Golan Heights uh, to Syria because our security is better protected by a peace treaty. Than it is by holding on to uh, holding on to the high ground. Uh, the Israelis used to worry a lot about a uh, the threat from the east. They would call it meaning some kind of combined Arab army uh, made up of uh, Syria, Iraq, uh, and in some scenarios Jordan invading across the Jordan River into in, into Israel. And that was seen some an alliance of that kind, or perhaps combined with an attack also by Egypt and Syria, uh, uh, 
from the uh, from the West. So a two front war that would threaten Israel's uh, security. Well, they don't worry about that anymore, uh, really. Uh, I suppose somebody always generals are paid to worry about the possible threats, not necessarily the most uh, plausible ones. Uh, what they should be worried more about, uh, and uh, they don't seem to be, at least they don't say so, is the threat of a nuclear attack. Uh, and a nuclear attack is not likely to come from, from any state, such as Iran, right? The, the current mm-hmm. Israeli uh, fixation on an, an Israeli nuclear threat, because uh, if Iran or any state would attack Israel with nuclear weapons, they'd be annihilated. They'd, they literally would cease to exist. Israel has, by various calculations, somewhere between 500 and 1,000 nuclear weapons. It only takes a couple. Uh, they ought to be worried more about that. But the threat is not from a state. The threat is from uh, some extremist group that somehow uh, acquires, gets its hands on, steals, however, some a tactical nuclear weapon or any kind of nuclear weapon. And since they're a terrorist group without a state and they may not even be able to be identified, they might decide uh, that uh, we'll, uh, we hate Israel so much that we will uh, attack with nuclear weapons. I don't think it's probable, but it certainly is, is likely. Well, the odds of that happening increase to the extent that Israel is refusing to give the Palestinians uh, their, own, their own state. So that that provides the motivation. It may be that states like uh, the Gulf states and Saudi Arabia is moving in that direction. Egypt and uh, Jordan and Syria have, or, or, or Egypt and Jordan, excuse me, have already decided they're going to come to terms with Israel. It really goes back into the late 1960s when they began to realize that Israel in all likely had, likelihood had nuclear weapons, and therefore war against them was out of the question. Uh, that uh, uh, losing my train of thought here a little bit, but uh, the the greater danger would be nuclear terrorism. And the Israel right. and, and the best way to control that danger would be for Israel uh, not to be the focus of hatred by uh, by groups that might actually decide to act on it if they had nuclear weapons. Uh, now, I, let me just add one thing about this: uh, going back about twenty years ago, uh, the Israeli former prime minister, former chief of staff, former most decorated military general in Israel's history, Ehud Barak, openly referred to the nuclear danger as the greatest danger facing Israel. And he used that argument in order to say he was prepared to make certain compromises. Not enough, but he was prepared to make certain compromises. But for the most part, uh, the Israelis are silent on this. Among other reasons, uh, if they decided to have a public debate about this, they would have to say publicly well, we have our own nuclear deterrent, and they refuse to acknowledge that they have nuclear weapons, although everybody knows that they do. Right. So this is the the major moral insecurity disaster you've been referring to then, is it? Well, no. The security disaster, the moral disaster, is uh, the repression and occupation and repression of the Palestinians. That's the moral disaster. And that mm-hmm. is having that, along with other uh, other other factors, is leading to a crisis of democracy in Israel, which is widely acknowledged 
uh, by Israelis. Let me just add something along those lines. Wherever possible, wherever I'm making an argument, especially a, an argument that goes against the current mythology or is likely to be seen as controversial, I try to cite uh, uh, Israeli writers. This includes not only historians and political scientists and scholars, but Israeli retired military men, uh, diplomats, um, and, and, and so on. Uh, and it's not difficult to find challenges to the Israel. I'm not the first to challenge uh, the Israeli mythology. In many ways, I'm relying very heavily on, on Israeli writers who have done that themselves, and in many cases for many, for many years. Um, there are lots and lots of retired uh, Israeli uh, diplomats, political leaders, intelligence officials, uh, and so on, and they have extensively uh, challenged uh, these mythologies, extensively, and I rely very heavily on them for for that. So this is not, not I, you know, I don't want to say that there's any original research here. Uh, well, a little bit, uh, but not much. Mm-hmm. Most of it is, and I, as I say, it's a work of synthesis. This is this is the best uh, writing, or the best arguments, the best analyses, the best uh, compendium of facts uh, that we have. And all I'm trying to do is 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 summarize and lay that out. And point to for people who want to follow up. That well, did did Ehud Barak really say that? Well, okay, Slater's got a citation on that. That kind of thing. So this goes back to the to to my hope that this will serve as a reference work. And then also um, in terms of your motivation, uh, you you refer to it in in your book. It's 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 that you know you see um, you know the Israeli the Jewish tradition as, as being one of uh, reason, enlightenment, um, and therefore you know uh, democratic, and and that um, you know Israel has been because of these mythologies, because of these. Um, uh, the the moral dilemma, I suppose, it's 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 becoming illiberal. It's it's moving away from that uh, tradition. Could you uh, expand on that for us? Well, not too much, because uh, I uh, very deliberately decided I was not going to make that uh, uh, an important part uh, of the of the book. It was enough to deal with the with the uh, with the uh, Arab-Israeli conflict and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and not go into. Uh, the impact of that on Israeli democracy itself, but uh, the uh, it's widely accepted within Israel. I, I say widely accepted. It's, it's widely accepted by 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 a number of people uh, that Israel's uh, own uh, liberalism and democratic uh, uh, future are being compromised by uh, the occupation. Of the Palestinians, and I do have a few quotes. If you read the the major Israeli newspaper, well, I say major Israeli newspaper. Others will argue about it, but the, mm-hmm. the one that is the paper that is mo- widely regarded in Israel and internationally as the most as the best Israeli newspaper is called the Haaretz H A A R E T E, which is published in English uh, daily. Haaretz has been warning for forty or fifty years that uh, if we continue these 
dead end policies or if we have to rely on on military force and uh, oppression of the Palestinians, uh, it's it's bound to have its effect on on uh, on liberalism uh, in a broad sense, uh, liberalism in Israel itself, and it obviously uh, is is having all, all of that now. Um, I don't want to go into detail on that because I, as I say, that's not my my uh, central focus. I do quote some summary by a well-known Israeli columnist of what is happening within Israel right now, and uh, there are many others, and it's uh, it's uh, it's chilling. It's it's like tr- Netanyahu and Trump are allies, and they're allies for good reasons. They have the same. Uh, right-wing ideology and desire to hold on to power at almost any cost. That's what's happening in Israel right now. As I say, I don't think you want me to go into detail about about the, what is happening with Netanyahu and, and the Israelis, but it's very, very worrisome in terms of, of the future. Uh, I do say in the book that uh, when Israel was created, uh, part of the uh, raison d'etre, if you will, the reason uh, that there ought to be a, a, a Jewish state, not the main reason, but one of them, was that Israel could serve as a light unto the nations. Uh, that because of the uh, liberal, enlightened Jewish traditions, uh, mostly dating uh, in the last couple of centuries, by the way, not going back a long time, uh, uh, that 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 Israel could serve as a beacon uh, for enlightenment and so on. Well, hardly anybody would make that claim anymore now. In fact, it would be it would be ridiculous. But at the time, it wasn't just uh, Jews or Israelis that thought that this was not a crazy idea. It was thought, well, yes, um, uh, the Jewish people do have contributions to make to Western civilization, and Israel should save, can, can and should serve as a beacon. Well, th- that there's no basis for such a claim anymore, and nobody would take it seriously today. But at one point, it was taken seriously. Mm-hmm. And and in a, in a sense, you're kind of committed to that early idealism. Uh, am I right? Well, I'm chastened by, the, by reality, like everybody else. But yeah, uh, yeah I mean, I I don't know if you want me to go into my own personal. Uh, uh, sure, yeah. sure. Why not? Well, all right. So I'm not. Uh, I'm not a bit religious, uh, but I've always identified with being Jewish, uh, mm-hmm. and and a, at least a good part of that identification, self-identification, uh, is that I do think uh, that at at our best. Uh, that we, uh, this is awfully grandiose, but you know, <laughs> um, that at our best, uh, we do have something to say to uh, Western civilization, something to contribute to Western mm-hmm. civilization. Uh, and one could, you know, go through the list of Jewish uh, artists and writers and scientists and physicians and so on and so forth. So the mm-hmm. claim that the Jews have uh, made a let's say, at least proportional contribution to uh, Western civilization in the best sense uh, is not without foundation. Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, Leo Strauss talked about, you know, Athens and Jerusalem, right? Yeah. That being two 
major pillars. Right. Well, I mean, the, you know, the danger is here is being grandiose, and it does sound pretty silly now. Uh, but that uh, that that was so. My my support of Israel, which continues, I continue to think, and I argue in the book that it's not wrong for there to be a Jewish state. Uh, and that uh, in part that has been uh, because of uh, of this fall hope that is now a forlorn hope, but things may change. Uh, that. Uh, there's very good reason for there to be a Jewish state, aside from the main reason, which is to protect Jews, have a Jewish refuge in case of murderous anti-Semitism. Uh, uh, and uh, so my identification has been with the, with the, with, with the, it's not religious at all. Well, mm-hmm. uh, that identification is difficult. I still have it, but it's, uh, it, it's difficult to maintain in light of the continuing uh, repression, I don't think there's any other word, of the Palestinian right. people. And now, so so given that um, that sort of background and motivation, I, I, I think it's important because um, it, it does guide us through the history in some ways, especially for, you know, say a non-specialist like myself. And, and you know, these things are, you know, can be quite convoluted, you know, lots of detail and, and so forth. But you you helpfully you know uh, identify you know four crucial issues of the Arab Israeli and the Israeli Palestinian conflict where um, where if if some sort of compromise you know c- could be made on those four issues um, it could lead to peace uh, and I, I don't know if you want to go through those issues or, or if if you remember them off the top of your head if you want me to read read them off. <laughs> Why don't you? Why don't you? I can look them up in my book, but why don't you? Yeah, sure. Yeah, because I have it right here in front of me, what? so don't worry. Yeah, go ahead. yeah. It's um, a partition of the historical land of Palestine, uh, Palestinian independence, and the sovereignty in the land allotted to them in the 1947 UN partition plan, including Arab East Jerusalem. Number three is the return of most of the territory captured from the Arab states in the various wars. And the last one is a small-scale symbolic return to Israel of some 10,000 to 20,000 Palestinian refugees or their descendants from the 1948 war. So, so if I understand correctly, that those are the kind of four sticking points that um, that if if um, some sort of acceptable compromise could be made there, the the whole conflict could theoretically be resolved but as i understand it the mythologies get in the way and and your historical narrative sort of examines that through you know event after event after event is is that correct yes i i I think so but i think what's important to add is that uh it's crucial to add this is in a sense is the most important uh, argument of my book that on all of these issues uh, the leading Arab states and the Palestinian, the bulk of the Palestinian leadership, and that includes Yasser Arafat after the 19, uh, beginning in the late 1980s, have been prepared to accept compromises on all of those issues. Moreover, there have been a number of private negotiations, private is misleading. 
negotiations between very prominent Israeli political leaders and Arab uh, or Palestinian political leaders, uh, which were not considered to be state-to-state negotiations, but negotiations between leaders to lay out what would be the kind of compromises we could make on all of those four issues. Uh, Some of these, in particular, uh, well, I should add, the the negotiations that took place, and I just get off the top of my head, I think maybe 2003, the year, between uh, an Israeli political leader named Yossi Balin, who has been a prominent in Israeli labor governments, and none other than uh, Mahmoud Abbas, uh, Abu Mazen, as he was known at the time, the current and for a long time Palestinian uh, uh, West Bank political leader. The Balin and and, uh, Abu Mazen slash Abbas uh, worked out a 50-page agreement in great detail covering all of those issues and compromising all of them. and it has been, and because it was not acceptable to the Israeli government, uh, it's long been accepted that if there were ever a two-state settlement, and I don't think there's ever going to, well, ever is a long time. The, mm-hmm. chances, the, the prospects have never been dimmer than they are now. If there ever was a two-state settlement, it would follow in very closely the the outline. Uh, or, or, the, or more than an outline, the detailed discussion and proposals of how you reconcile the various conflicts up that were rec- that that are embodied in in the Geneva Agreements as there as they come to be known. Uh, so um, yes, there's uh, it's it's Israel which has been the obstacle on on uh, or the primary obstacle on all of those issues. By the way, one should add here. I think it's very important. I mean, people listening to this and reading just say, "Well, that maybe that's what uh, what uh, the, the the current Palestinian leadership, uh, Mahmoud Abbas, uh, believe." But what about Hamas? Well, mm-hmm. uh, there the the evidence is is uh, uh, there. There are. Uh, let me rephrase this: the weight of the evidence is not all on one side, and I use that term sometimes. I say the evidence is overwhelming. And then I lay out why. Other times I say the weight of the evidence, meaning taking into account even things that may seem to be contradictory. The weight of the evidence, and I want to use that term, is that Hamas is prepared to accept a two-state settlement as well. Uh, They indicate this in a variety of ways, in a variety of proposals. They don't say it officially. Uh, In fact, I think officially they continue to say, well, all of Palestine uh, belongs to us. Uh, but that in practice is not their uh, their policy, so that it is very likely that Hamas would go along with a two-state settlement, uh, mainly because they realize that's the most they could get. They're not under any illusions that they can defeat Israel in a, in, in a war. And moreover, Hamas seems increasingly willing to settle for its continued uh, control, continued political rule over Gaza. Uh, that uh, that they, they know the chances of their getting that over the West Bank are not great. Uh, and so there's, there's lots of evidence that Hamas would not be a major obstacle uh, to an agreement which incorporated compromises on all of those those four points. By the way, I want to add something specifically, if I may, unless, unless you want to follow, sure. follow up. 
Um, it's widely believed that the real sticking point, and this is the last point, the, the right of return of the Palestinian refugees, and in some, in some cases, the refugees and their descendants. So this refers to Palestinians who, were, who left or were driven out of Israel in 1948, and again, more in 1967, uh, who uh, insist on their right to return to their original um, homes, villages, and so on, most of which have ceased to exist. Well, that's, and, and, and now if you count their descendants, by some counts, it could be 4 million uh, descendants. Well, everybody knows that's totally impractical, never going to happen. And the Palestinian leaders know it as well. So that in the negotiations, and especially negotiations uh, between uh, Ehud Olmert, who was Israeli prime minister 10 years ago or so, and, and Abbas, Mahmoud Abbas, the Palestinian leaders, uh, what it came down to is, well, will you accept uh, 100,000? And Momo said, no, no. I said, I think 10,000 is the most we can guess. We're not talking about millions of people. The Palestinians and Arafat himself often privately said to the Israelis, we realize that there is no prospect of a, a, a literal return of the Palestinians to Israel. What we will settle for is some kind of symbolic acknowledgement that Israel bears a good share of the responsibility for uh, the creation of the refugee problem, which is absolutely true, uh, an acknowledgement of this, and then some kind of uh, symbolic return, 10,000, 15,000, 20,000 Palestinians to Israel, which obviously would not threaten the Jewish character uh, of, of, of Israel. So that in practice, even the right of return is not nearly the obstacle that it is often thought to be by people who take literally the Palestinians saying, we have a right to, we insist on all the return of all the refugees and their descendants. Right. And now, just to kind of um, follow up on, on some of that, there, there's a couple of issues I do want to follow up, but so I'll take them one at a time. Uh, one is it, it, from my understanding, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, from your argument, is that um, uh, Zionism itself, and, and I suppose the way it's, it's developed, because I suppose there are different um, types of Zionism and strands and, and whatnot. Indeed. But, but uh, the, uh, your evaluation of, of Zionism itself is, is that that is, is a big part of the problem uh, in, in terms of its, its uh, envisaging of permanent sovereignty over Palestine. Um, I, do you want to uh, elaborate on that? Sure. Uh, my argument is that uh, there are about, let's just say off the top of my head, five or six standard arguments as to why in, in Zionism as to why the uh, the Jews have a right to all of Palestine. Uh, most of them are uh, are insupportable. I mean, the argument, for example, that uh, that uh, God promised this uh, to us is only going to be convincing to those people who want to believe in, uh, uh, only to Jews to begin with, who, uh, well, that's not entirely true. It's also, also Christian Zionists hold to something like that, that the that that the because the Bible says that uh, the Jews were uh, God promised Jews to the Israel to the, to the Israelis to the Jews uh, for eternity. Uh, 
It's a religious argument which is not going to be accepted not only by other religions, but not accepted by large numbers of the Jewish people themselves. Uh, you can't you can't claim uh, that you have a right to eternity because you claim that the Bible said that God uh, 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 made this promise. Uh, so that's one of the arguments which is which is insupportable. The uh, a more, somewhat more serious argument is, uh, although not really, is that uh, uh, we had sovereignty over Palestine uh, until. Uh, the Romans expelled the Jews 2,000 years ago, and therefore we are the only rightful holders of, of sovereignty uh, over over Israel because uh, over over Palestine because that's what we were years ago. First place, the facts on this have been widely rejected by Israelis, historians, archaeologists. Uh, 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 scholars of various kinds who challenge the notion in all kinds of ways that they never, whether there really was uh, a, a majority Jewish presence, whether they had sovereignty, whether it was an extensive kingdom, so on and so forth. So that the facts, in quote, in which that uh, claim are made have been rejected widely. They're not regarded as serious by Israeli scholars who know better. My argument is that it wouldn't matter if it was true. Suppose it were true that uh, the, the Bible should be taken literally, uh, that uh, the, the stories of the, uh, the Roman exile and the exile from Egypt into Israel and so on, all the biblical stories which form the basis for Zionism, or at least the more religious uh, aspects of Zionism, suppose they were all true. How could that be a claim and that, uh, that, that we held sovereignty, we, the Jews, held sovereignty until 2,000 years ago, well, in the interim, uh, much has changed. There's no place on earth in which it's taken to be a serious claim that if you inhabited this 2,000 years ago, but since then it's gone through uh, 12 different uh, uh, changes of, uh, of who was dominant there, that, that, that it, the only one that counts is what happened 2,000 years ago. It's not a serious argument. Uh, it's, uh, it's an argument that, as a supporter of Israel, uh, that um, or, or the right for, to there to be a Jewish state in Israel, uh, uh, it's not necessary to that argument. So there are more con- there are more contemporary claims, such as the Balfour Declaration in 1919. Mm-hmm. The British, um, I believe, Foreign Secretary Lord Balfour made a conditional promise to Israel at that time. Uh, Palestine, of course, was uh, was under British control. It was a British colony. Said that uh, that uh, uh, we will we will uh, uh, we agree to make Palestine the homeland of the Jewish uh, state. Uh, well, I don't want to get into the complexities of the Balfour Declaration. There's a great literature on this. It didn't promise uh, the uh, the Zionist political sovereignty over Palestine. It promised the homeland. And so on. Yeah, that that's interesting. I, I'd like you to just expand on it a little. The the your conceptual difference between a homeland and a state. So does that mean um, uh, that uh, well, it, some sort of uh, you know autonomy within a, a wider you know almost federal state structure that's that's multi ethnic? You know, would have been um, 
you know, uh, in in line with the uh, promise of the the Balfour Declaration, I I, I just find that interesting. Yeah. I'd like to hear well, what you. Well, think. the answer is who knows. I mean, uh, all of this is one line in the Balfour Declaration, followed by a line which says something like, "So long as it is not prejudicial to the rights of the uh, of the Palestinians," or language to that effect. So it's a conditional promise in two ways, right? It doesn't right. promise sovereignty. It promises a homeland, whatever that might mean. Uh, and, 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 and one that doesn't conditioned on the rights of the Palestinians, however it was worded, being uh, observed. So it's conditional in two ways. Who knows what a homeland would uh, consist of? Could it be, does that mean uh, 10%? Does it mean 50%? It, it's, it's left very vague. But that, right. isn't, that isn't my main argument. My mm-hmm. main argument is that even if you took the most, ex, uh, from the Zionist point of view, the most favorable interpretation of the Balfour Declaration, well, he was really promising, in effect, a Jewish state, which he wasn't. But even if you took that position, uh, what is the moral weight of such a promise? This was a colonial uh, British, uh, uh, Palestine was a British colony. So they said, well, it's our colony, so... In effect, we'll do what we want. We think that the Jewish state there is a nice idea, or, or a Jewish homeland is a nice idea, uh, and so on. Uh, so there's no moral weight to be attached to something that was simply a colonial imposition, even if it wasn't conditional in other ways. So it's a very, very weak read for for Zionism to depend upon. So then, so then, if if you yourself you know, are a supporter of the state of Israel, right. but you, you don't accept the, um, the, I guess, religious Zionist argument and neither the Balfour Declaration. And what, what is your uh, justification? Yeah, there's only, and I, I, I say this in several different ways throughout the book because I don't want to be misunderstood. There is only one good argument for a Jewish state in Israel, but it's a sufficient argument. It's that, that uh, there is... A 2,000 or more year history of murderous anti-Semitism breaking out in all places, and even in places in which the Jews had long been uh, accepted and uh, uh, held high positions. You could go, the most obvious recent one, obvious Nazi Germany, but even before that, you had Spain, you had Portugal, you had all cases throughout history where suddenly, sometimes after 200 years of peaceful coexistence between Jews and Christians or Muslims, whoever, uh, suddenly you get outbreaks of, of sheer murder. And this has gone on for 2,000 years. The Holocaust makes it obvious. And I don't consider that the possibility of this happening anymore has been entirely removed. So the argument is has to be uh, that uh, a Jewish state is necessary for the survival of, that may be necessary, put it that way, once again, for the survival, literally the survival, of the Jewish people. And we cannot depend upon the goodwill uh, and power of, of others. We have to depend in the last, or we may have to depend, may have to depend on uh, our own, uh, uh, on ourselves. Uh, for this, we need a state. I accept all of those arguments. I don't think they're invalid arguments even today. Um, and that, for that reason, uh, I am sort of, in some sense, uh, uh, still a Zionist. I reject 
almost all the Zionist arguments except that one. And that right. one, that one is is sufficient. I think that argument in some ways is even stronger today than it was, let's say, 10, 15 years ago, because there clearly has been a revival of anti-Semitism uh, in, uh, in certainly in the Islamic world, but also in in Europe, in in Germany, in France, and so on. So far, it's my it's my a minority, uh, and nobody is threatening a Holocaust, et cetera, et cetera. But we, the Jewish people, and here I say we, have mm-hmm. a long history of not of, of not being able to count on. Uh, uh, on civilization to prevail whenever anti-Semitism once again uh, breaks breaks out, uh, and this is all that is needed in order to justify a Jewish state. Now, having said that, it's entirely a separate issue in theory, in principle, as to where that state should be located. Uh, the early Zionists. Uh, Many of them were prepared to consider any number of, of, of places other than Palestine. What was important to them is that there be a Jewish state which was capable of defending itself and in which Jews could turn to, uh, move to, if necessary. But they would, considered it to be secondary as to where that would be. But religious Zionism, which focused on Palestine and said only Palestine is acceptable, uh, because of the religious and biblical arguments, uh, prevailed. Um, now, uh, by the end of World War II, uh, after the Holocaust, there no longer was any practical prospect of creating a Jewish state anyplace but in Palestine. So my argument was that the Israelis, uh, that creation of a Jewish state in Palestine was clearly an injustice to the Palestinians, but the Zionists could have recognized that. They could have said, we recognize this is an injustice, but this is a, for us, uh, a supreme emergency that there be a Jewish state. Palestine is the only practical place uh, for there to be. Uh, but we will remedy this, these injustices in a whole variety of ways. And then I lay out all the things that the Israelis could have done to have, uh, to ha- to have done with And the most obvious being, that we don't insist on a greater Israel. Uh, we'll accept the, uh, the Israel, uh, the partition of Israel that the United Nations uh, uh, ordered, and uh, you will have your own state and we will coexist with you happily and so on and so forth. And they certainly wouldn't have driven the Palestinians out of the parts of Israel or Palestine that they came to uh, uh, control. So that, uh, uh, and, and part of my argument is that, well, Maybe, just maybe, it's not too late. Maybe if the Israelis accept that their mythologies are without foundation, that they've done a grave injustice to the Palestinian people, uh, that they that they then will uh, will move in that direction. It's a fall on hope under Netanyahu and under and let alone under Trump uh, that uh, this will happen. But one has to hope. That, that things in the future may may change enough so that some kind of accommodation here is can be reached. And for that to happen, that's my argument, the Israelis have to recognize that these mythologies, the bad arguments for Zionism, uh, the uh, failure to reach compromises when the Arab states 
and the Palestinians were largely willing to do so, that they bear the major responsibility for the continuation of this conflict. And so that's why I argue that the, the sine qua non, the necessary precondition for, for uh, there to be a final agreement on this is an Israeli recognition that the mythologies cannot be morally or, or, or factually uh, upheld. Okay, um, that that's interesting, and I so I, I want to s- sort of understand uh, pushing forward with your solution because though, I I think those points you raised just now definitely go back to the to the four major points of, of compromise that you talked about that can bring about a peace. But you've said that you think now um, you know the situation is is further away from peace, uh, you know. Uh, than a long time. Although, you know, the Trump administration, you know, has been talking about the, um, was it the UAE-Israel declaration and some, some of, you know, and and, and then I don't know how the Jerusalem thing um, uh, fits into that at all or complicates it or whatnot. But um, at the end of the book, uh, when you talk about, you know, the possible solutions, well, there are, Three basically. There's the the two state solution. I suppose if you want to call it the original two state solution, which which is kind of dead in the water with uh, continued occupation and expansion and and etc. Uh, then there's uh, the one state solution, uh, which you argue against, and and I'd like you to to elaborate why, whether it's it's practical or it's some principle it's philosophical or whatnot and then you have your your limited uh, two-state solution which which you propose can you um, just kind of go over those um, three possibilities and 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 um, yeah well the, two, and, the, the two yeah. State solution is is hopeless now because uh, not only the Netanyahu government but um, 75 to 80 percent of the Israeli population, the Jewish Israeli population certainly, uh, are adamantly opposed to uh, withdrawal from the uh, West Bank uh, and uh, East Jerusalem. They they, they consider that to be absolutely out of the question. Well, if you don't give the Palestinians uh, their capital in the the Arab sections of Jerusalem, the remains of them, uh, and a, a true state in the West Bank and Gaza, then they don't have a, a state. Uh, so uh, no serious observer thinks that under the present conditions, and probably forever, there can be that kind of uh, two-state settlement. And meanwhile, the Israelis continue to expand into the West Bank anyway. They continue to settle in it. Uh, apparently, formal annexation of uh, large parts of the West Bank are now which Netanyahu has been promising for years, are now out of the question for a variety of reasons. But they are de facto annexing many other areas simply by expanding their settlements. Uh, so uh, 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 that's pretty much dead. The one-state settlement, which most people who despair of a two-state settlement but want there to be justice for the Palestinians, say, well, let's have a single uh, binational uh, uh, a state, one state in which the uh, Israel, Israel time, it's sometimes called, you no know, combination of Israel and Palestine. Well, if the two state settlement is not 
possible because essentially because of the attitude of the Israelis, why would they think that a one-state settlement in which the uh, Palestinians could even become a majority would be acceptable? It's totally out of the question for the Israelis. They couldn't get, you wouldn't get 10% of Israelis to agree to, to uh, a state which would bring into uh, Israel itself, I, I'm, I'm just going to guess now, at the Palestinian population, maybe 6 million uh, 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 Palestinian people. Not only that, the Palestinian people are against it too. They don't want to be, uh, because they would, they would understand that within a, uh, a single state, uh, the Jews would continue to be, not only would they continue to be a majority, that might change, but they would continue to hold real power, which is not likely to change. And so they would become at best, second-class citizens. So there's no support in the Israelis and very little support among the Palestinians. Uh, it's it's wholly utopian. It presupposes that the conflict has ends. It's not a solution to the conflict. It could only follow if the conflict were already resolved. So that, if, if I'm right, and I don't think most serious uh, observers of the conflict would dismiss the possibilities as utopian. Uh, uh, and that leaves, what does that leave? It leaves, well, what I propose is a much uh, more modest, say the least, uh, state for the Palestinians and what in, in, made up primarily of the six or eight largest population centers of the, of the West Bank. Uh, areas of the West Bank, which are quite small, but which contain the majority of the Palestinian people, um, uh, and over areas that Israel has no, this is crucial, Israel is not interested in annexing formally or de facto or ruling over uh, directly over the uh, over Palestinian cities. Uh, so that the Israel, it's conceivable, is my argument, that Israel would accept a state that consisted primarily of the most populated areas in, in on the West Bank, populated by the Palestinians, leaving the Israelis with control over uh, figures very, I suppose, very sixty or seventy percent of the actual land of the West Bank. Uh, so that's a it's a very minimal settlement for the Palestinians, uh, and the only reason that I even propose it is I think that the alternatives for them are worse. And the alternatives, if if not that, then what are they going to have? They're going to have. Uh, continued occupation and repression by the Israelis, continued Israeli settlement in the West Bank. And what they are headed for is what happened to the American Indians uh, uh, when the, uh, at the end of the 19th century. They're going to be confined to, uh, to effectively to reservations uh, here and there. Uh, I can't see any other possibility except such a state which the Palestinians would recognize immediately is unfair uh, and in, in, in many ways, which it certainly is, the only argument for it would be, uh, what is your alternative in practice? Uh, nobody is going to press Israel uh, to, uh, to go for, the, for a legitimate uh, two-state settlement, not only under Trump, but even under, um, even under a Biden uh, administration. Uh, there isn't going to be any heavy pressure on Israel. If there were heavy pressures, they'd resist it anyway. Uh, so it's it's a bad solution, but it's better than the alternative. 
Right, right. So that's um, it's a very uh, sobering uh, analysis, but a but a very realistic and, and informed one. Um, so in terms, I mean, I, I normally you know would ask the authors, um, you know, where do you see you know the conflict going or, or this going? You you kind of said it already, but if we were to to if I was to summarize it from from what I understand, you've said it, it's basically that. It's kind of the status quo. Looks like it's it's going to continue uh, of of of, a, of an Israeli occupying force of of the Palestinian air areas, and it'll probably keep expanding, keep expanding, and as you say, turn into some sort of uh, you know kind of like the American Indian system, you know, in in the U.S. with reservations and whatnot, and um, and even your solution of the limited two state is is uh you know not utopian but uh but difficult uh to achieve right now given the state so so in other words where you kind of see this conflict going is not necessarily at a hopeful place right now is it no not at all i'm very pessimistic about it i didn't want to end on uh uh just by saying well this is the state of affairs i know it's very bad and i can't offer any hope but such are the facts uh, and I just didn't want to end there. And I wanted to think, well, is there anything that if a two-state settlement is impractical and a one-state settlement is even more impractical, is there any chance? Is there any hope? Uh, and and frankly, it's very, very dim. I don't, don't think under the present conditions that the Israelis would even consider this kind of very limited uh, uh, settlement that Jerusalem would again become a major issue. All, all other things would come up. So I'm quite pessimistic, but uh, you don't want to say that the situation is utterly hopeless. Circumstances, right. circumstances can change. If they can change, if they do change, what is the most realistic possibility? And I think the most realistic possibility is, as I said, some kind of limited state uh, which would have many advantages to the Palestinians and would end the occupation. That's the crucial, uh, the crucial uh, thing, and give them some kind of state of their own. And I compare that to uh, the European mini-states like Luxembourg, for example. Tiny little states, they're surrounded by other states. They're, they're really essentially powerless if anybody wanted to invade them, but nobody wants to invade them. So they, yeah. they, they become very uh, successful. So it's not out of the question, let me put it that way, not out of the question that the Palestinians could reach some kind of mini-state, uh, a Luxembourg solution, I think I call it in the book, right. uh, in, the, in the future. So I, I want to end with that, with that uh, at least in principle, hopeful um, assessment or prognosis. Okay, very good, very good. Because um, that, that's how I normally... Uh, end off the interview and you did it, you know, what, what would, you know, what message would you like to leave? And, and so at least there's, there's some sort of hope, even in, <clears throat> even in these sort of, uh, not very hopeful times for, for this situation. So, yeah, well, th- thanks a lot for that. I, I really appreciate it. I, I you know, you, your book uh, is, is really the culmination of a, of a lifetime of, of engagement and thought and, and debate on it, and I think it, it's very valuable, very, very valuable for people. Um, are you? I don't know if you're working on any other projects right now, or, or you know, if, if there's a place uh, that um, 
Uh, listeners can go and, and find your other work as well. Um, is is there anything you want uh, our listeners to know about before we um, close off? Well, uh, not really. They don't have to go anyplace else. I mean, as, I, as you say, I've written extensively, and a lot of it in scholarly journals uh, uh, about this, but it's all incorporated uh, uh, in, in the book. I used to have a blog. I dropped it um, when I started working on this book. It's possible that I could uh, will revive that blog in order to keep, you know, saying, "Well, this is my latest assessment mm-hmm. on this." But I'm not, uh, I'm not sure about that. I just, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I only finished this uh, all the different aspects of a production of a book about a month ago. I'm, I'm going to rest for a while. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you're 85 years young. You, you, you sound great. You sound like you're, you're going strong, and, and that's uh, really nice to hear. Let me let me just close with a little joke about that, as a matter of fact, because uh, I've been asked by mostly my friends and so on, well, what's your next book? And so what I point out is that my previous book, the last book I wrote, uh, came out in 1970. So that, oh. that's the 50 years between books, and that if I write another book, I'm going to try to cut that time gap in half. (laughs) Very good. Very good. Well, I want to thank you so much for this interview. It's been very informative and enjoyable. Well, thank you very much. So once again, the book is Mythologies Without End, the U.S.-Israel and the Arab-Israeli Conflict, 1917 to 2020. And we've been speaking to the author, Jerome Slater. Thanks also to you, our listeners. Make sure you sign up for our notifications so that you don't miss any new interviews on this channel in future. I look forward to seeing you on the next episode.